All right. Are you ready? Let's take our Bibles and let's open them to Romans chapter 9. We are back in the book of Romans. Romans is an outstanding book of the Bible. It is the backbone of our doctrine as a church. And we have been spending the, the vast majority of this year, 2014, in the book of Romans. We started in January. And with brief, uh, 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 brief breaks from Romans, we are now in October, and we are in chapter number 9. This is the next section. Romans can be broken down into different sections. Uh, we saw from the very beginning that the overarching theme of the entire book has to do with God's righteousness. And different ways that that's played out as we see it unfolding in our lives and in the world. And so basically the first three chapters uh, dealt with sin. And then the next couple of chapters, four and five, deal with salvation, justification by faith. Chapters six, seven, and eight that we would have completed through the summer deal with sanctification and how to walk in the Spirit and all that sort of thing, dealing with sin. And now as we enter into chapters 9, 10, and 11, these three chapters make the next section. We, we have put a title over that section like God's sovereignty. Uh, really what we're dealing with, and I've given a title to this mini-series of these next three chapters, and what it is is, is um, God's chosen people, the road to righteousness. That's kind of the mini-series we're going to see. We're going to talk about God's chosen people, and it's, it's literally dealing with the nation of Israel. So today's title is Israel's Role in Righteousness. This really is going to serve just kind of as an introduction, not only to chapter 9, but to all three chapters as we're going forward. Today's message is, is introductory, but very, very critically important. Let me say to those of you, we have a handful of people in our church who are going through our advanced Bible training. We call that LTI, Leadership Training Institute. Please pay close attention these months. It'll take us about three months to go through these three chapters. Please pay attention even to some of the key words that we will hit as we go through today, because when we study this in more detail together, you will see how these words are really, really important. So these three chapters, Romans 9, Romans 10, and Romans 11, break up in a very, very simple outline, and they're in your notes for you. Very simply this, Romans chapter 9 deals with Israel's past. Romans chapter 10 deals with Israel's present. And Romans chapter 11 deals with Israel's future. We'll see that in great detail. It'll become very, very clear to you by the time we get into January and we're done with this section of the Scripture. Today, all that we're going to do is we're going to take a little bit of time and we're going to take a look at this little, small, Middle Eastern country that is surrounded, enormously surrounded by all of their enemies who are dedicated to their extinction. And we're going to take a look at this nation historically, and we're going to try and understand why they are so important. Why is it that important in God's past dealing with all of mankind, which is kind of what Romans 9 will lay out for us? And then ultimately in the present and in the future, why it is so critically important as well for us even today and how God continues to deal with all of mankind with Israel as a key component in that whole picture. You have got to understand the nation of Israel. Many false cults and teachings and aberrations of scriptural teaching fall on the fact that people want to remove Israel from the picture. They want to make the church replace Israel in every aspect, that Israel as a nation, as God's people, have no more role in God's economy. And when they do that, they make a grave error. And these chapters probably more than any other place in all the Scripture, make it so very clear that that's the case. So like our 
title of the series says God's chosen people, you know, what I need to do is then just kind of show you how clearly the Bible teaches us that Israel indeed represents God's chosen. Israel indeed does represent God's chosen. The Bible could not be more clear about this. And this is going to be very, very important as we walk into some issues that many people have considered to have some real landmines a little further down in chapter 9. We'll save that for when we get there. It will be very clear later in chapter 9 if you understand how God has truly, sovereignly chose the nation of Israel to be his people. I have some examples for you. Please follow along. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse number 6. Very, very clear. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee, Israel, to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. You say, well, I don't really like that. Well, you don't have to like it. God said that that's the way it is. He made it very, very clear. It goes on and on and on. I picked out about five different places. You could literally pick hundreds. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 15. Only the Lord had a delight in the fathers to love them, and he chose their seed after them, even you, above all people, as it is this day. 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. This is the introduction of King Solomon after David passed away. And now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king, talking about Solomon, instead of David my father, and I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or come in, and thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen, a great people that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. And Solomon understood the great task before him of leading the chosen people of God. And he begs God in that ultimate request when God said, I'll give you whatever you want. And he doesn't ask for riches. He didn't ask for victory over his enemies. He asked for wisdom to govern God's people because he understood that they indeed are God's chosen people. Psalm 33, verse number 12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. We're going to see the inheritance issue later today. Psalm 105, verses 42 and 43, for he remembered his holy promise and Abraham, his servant, we'll see Abraham in just a second, and he brought forth his people with joy and his chosen with gladness. Literally, we could go on and on and on. We have got to understand the incredibly critical, critically important role that Israel plays throughout all of human history. It is very, very important that we get that. And so today is simply an introduction to these next three chapters. Today is the thing that is going to help us understand very clearly an issue that we will see next week and the week to come um, in the issue of what God considers when, he, when we talk about this issue of being God's chosen, being God's elect. Who are the elect? Who are the chosen? What exactly does all of that mean? People confuse it with issues of prede, uh, predestination and eternal choosing before the foundation of the world to salvation or to hell. We're going to see all of those things when we walk through that, but today is not that day. This is just an introduction. You have got to get this, though. You have got to see the foundation as Paul, through the Holy Spirit, begins to build this case. Because when we get to the middle of Romans chapter 9, it is not selected out of the context of the beginning of Romans chapter 9. You've got to understand that. We're going to do some Bible study together. You all ready? Some of you are ready. Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we come to you humbly and thankfully, fearfully, in fact, before your holy word. It is perfect. It is true. It is the very oracles of God. 
And we humble ourselves before you, asking you, Lord. We need to be emptied of ourselves, filled with your Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, be our instructor, be our guide, be our teacher this moment. We need you desperately to lead us and to open our eyes and to understand the foundation upon which you will continue to reveal to us the amazing story of how you have provided salvation to all of mankind. Thank you for doing that. Thank you that we are the recipients of your grace, of your mercy, of your kindness, of your goodness. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. And thank you for giving us your word that's holy and pure and perfect and preserved. And we can believe it and we can trust it and we can know that it's right. I pray that you would speak to us and I pray that you would help us to understand. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so where did all this start? Well, it all started with what I'm calling a miraculous beginning. A miraculous beginning. We're not going to quite get into Romans chapter 9 until we get to the second part of this message. The first message, we're going to give us some history. We're going to get some background. We're going to get a running start. We're going to go back all the way to Genesis chapter 12 and the first three verses. Because in Genesis 12, 1, 2, and 3 is where the whole thing gets rolling. I understand that there was human history before Genesis chapter 12, but considering and concerning Israel... You're going to start here in Genesis chapter 12 with a very unique man who everybody's heard of. At this time, he's called Abram. Eventually, he has his name changed to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, God calls him, verse number one. Now, the Lord had said unto Abram, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation. That's important. There will be a nation that will come forth from Abraham that will be a great nation. He says, and I will bless thee and make thy name great. And that reference is not just specifically to Abraham, the individual, but then to the nation that will come from him. Make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee, Abram, shall all families of the earth be blessed. This prophecy of the Scripture, this, this promise that God gave to Abram will change human history forever. It is a promise that is unconditional. Notice, he does not say, we're going to cut a deal. I'm going to make a deal with you, Abram. I'll tell you what, if you do certain things, I'm going to do this for you. There is no condition whatsoever put on this promise from God. It is an eternal promise. It is everlasting. It is unconditional. God just steps in and he just says, hey, Abram, I am going to do all of this great stuff and I have chosen to do it through you. And Abram might decide, I'm not interested. It doesn't really matter. Abram might decide, I'm not going to follow your plan. It doesn't really matter. God said he is going to do this and God is going to do this. And that is absolutely unbelievable to our sensibilities sometimes because all of the other covenants, all of the other things that God does in interworking with man, what we see is there's always a human responsibility in response. If we obey, for example, in the law, if we obey, we will be blessed. If we disobey, we will be cursed. But not in this one. This one is unconditional. This one is absolutely all 100% up to God. Now, Abram is smart enough to believe it. Abraham follows through with this. He trusts God, but it is a promise. It is not a contract. It is not a deal. It is not an agreement or an understanding. This is just simply God declaring a promise, and it's everlasting. Jer uh, Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 36. Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day, 
and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. So as long as the sun rises every day, Israel is all good. (laughs) They have nothing to fear. As long as we have the sun and the moon and the stars, until they all disappear, Israel will be God's nation forever. That's what he said. That's where it all started. It starts with one man. His name is Abram. God calls him, and God chooses him. And that's very, very important. He chooses to bless him. Why did he choose to bless him? Well, he chose to bless him with the purpose that through him, he would bring salvation to the entire world. That through him, he would be a blessing to all of the families of the earth. That's what he said in Genesis chapter 12. That's what we just read. But you know the story. Listen, we're just going to do a very quick overview of the high points of the Old Testament story. But even the younger ones that are in this room, if you spend any time in Sunday school growing up, you know the story. Abram had a problem. He gets this promise from God that his seed are going to be a great nation and and they're going to be as the sand of the sea and the dust of the earth and the stars of the sky. But they don't have any children. He's married. His wife is barren. They're getting on in years. They can't have any kids. And so what happens? Well, this is what I'm referring to as the miraculous beginning of this whole story. God gives an unconditional promise, physically impossible to be carried out. Abram and Sarah are beyond years. They can't possibly pull this off in their own strength. God comes through with a miracle to fulfill his word, which is eternal, and he's going to make sure that it's going to happen. And the miracle solution is is that God promises to give them a child even beyond their normal childbearing years. Genesis 17 Verses 16 to 19, remember the promise to Abram is unconditional. It is not conditioned based on Abram keeping his health well enough so that he can bear children or Sarah either one. It's an unconditional promise. God will make sure it happens. God made sure it happened. Genesis 17, 16. And I will bless her, speaking of Sarah, and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. Then Abraham fell on his face. Be careful. And laughed and said in his heart, can you imagine? (laughs) Shall a child be born of him that's 100 years old, really? And shall Sarah that's 90 years old bear? I mean, what nerve, Abraham, really? God said, I'm going to do this. You think the old guy would be like, wahoo, all right, man, let the party start. I mean, let's just start playing some Lou Rawls music and let's get this thing going. Some of you are like, I don't even know who that is. <laughs> and, but Abram just laughs. He's like, that is the dumbest idea. That's ridiculous. Well, we'll see how it plays out, obviously. We know what happens in the long run. So, and Abraham said unto God, oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. And, and you know the story. Again, they, Abram had uh, the bad sense to listen to bad advice from his wife who said, look, I know we got this promise and it ain't seemed to be working out. So, you know, I have a handmaid named Hagar and go in unto her and have a child. And he did. And that was a dumb idea. And Ishmael was the product of that. And, and, and Abram's just thinking, look, I, I love this boy. And, and how about we just bless him? How about that? And uh, the Lord says, no, no, that's not the way it's going to work out. God said, Sarah, thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac, which, by the way, the name Isaac just happens to mean 
laughter. In case you're ever, every time you call that boy in for lunch, just remember, you laughed at me when I told you about this. You shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. And so God sets the standard, and he makes it very clear. The lineage will come through Abram, Abraham now, and through his son Isaac, not Ishmael. To this very day, we have problems in the Middle East because of that. So Isaac is the one is the, that the promise will pass through. Isaac is the one that God says that he is going to continue this lineage with. The story goes on, and Isaac then has two sons. They're twin boys. Their names are Esau and Jacob. Esau comes out first, so he officially is the eldest son, but he sells his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of stew. Again, we're not going to recount all the details of this story. You kind of know the story probably, and that Esau came in famished. He was hungry, and, and, and Jacob, is a, he's, a, he's a conniver. He's a sneak, and, and he's, a, he's the guy who's always trying to cut a deal and cheat his way into something. I get it. But God had said the elder shall serve the younger, and we're going to see all about that next week and the week after. But through this situation, what you find is that Esau thinks about only the physical and the here and the now, and he's like, man, I'm dying of hunger. Have you ever felt that way? And he's like, what? And Jacob's like, I tell you what, man. I'll, say, I'll, I'll give you this bowl of stew, and you won't die of hunger if you give me your birthright. I mean, what a sneaky dude. And Esau's like, what good is a birthright if I die? And he says, all right, where do I sign? And he does it. By the way, as we'll see when we talk about Jacob and Esau next week, that tick got off. Did not appreciate the fact that he despised his birthright. And he just handed it over so flippantly. And as a result, Esau will suffer. We'll see that. So it passes on to Jacob. Jacob is the one that receives this paternal blessing. Jacob is the one who then, when Isaac is old and about to pass, he, he passes along this fatherly blessing to Jacob as the blessing of the firstborn. He's the one who receives it. So Jacob then receives these things. And, and you will see in the language in some of these verses, Genesis 26, verse 4. And I will make thy seed, he's speaking to Jacob, to multiply as the stars of heaven and will give unto thy seed all these countries and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Sound familiar? It's the blessing that was given originally to Abram. Chapter 27, verse 29. Let people serve thee and nations bow down to thee. Be Lord over thy brethren, and let thy mother's sons bow down to thee. Cursed be everyone that curseth thee, and blessed be he that blesseth thee. Jacob receives, again, the same promise. The lineage is passed down through Isaac and through Jacob. Continuing on in the story of Jacob, you get to chapter number 32, and it's that story where Jacob wrestles with an angel, and he wants him to bless him. And it says that he ultimately won't let him go until he blesses him. And when that happens, the angel says to Jacob, that I'm going to change your name. You are no longer Jacob. You are now going to be called Israel. So Jacob, you got to get this. This is going to be really, really important. The people who are here next week, who are not here today, are going to miss out. you got the stuff that they won't have. You ready? Jacob is Israel, literally. Jacob represents the nation ultimately, but literally the name Jacob is Israel. That's important. The verse that gives that to us is verse 28 of Genesis 32. And he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men 
and hast prevailed. Prince with God, Israel. That's literally what that name means. Jacob then ultimately marries, and he wants that one precious wife, right? He wants Rachel. He ultimately gets Leah, and they have handmaids. He ultimately has 12 sons. The 12 sons of Jacob he has with four different women. (sighs) God help him. Genesis 29 and 30 give the list of these boys and who they came from. These 12 sons ultimately become the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. The one to keep your eye on is Judah. Judah is the fourth son. He is born to Leah. His name literally means praise. And Judah is the tribe that will bring forth the Messiah. That is the thing you want to keep your eyes on. Genesis 49 and verse number 10, the scepter, the, 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 the scepter of the king shall not depart from Judah. Judah is the one. Nor a lawgiver, that's the king, from between his feet until Shiloh, capital S, Shiloh come. And unto him, unto Shiloh, shall be the gathering of the people be. Shiloh is Jesus Christ. It's the Messiah. That's who it's referring to. The ultimate king that will be king of kings and lord of lords. And that comes through the 12 sons. It comes through specifically Judah. King David, by the way, comes through the lineage of Judah. And so Jesus is the son of Abraham. Jesus is the son of David because of the kingly lineage that comes through Judah and David. The story then passes to Moses. And Moses shows up in the book of Exodus. And in the book of Exodus is where we find Israel for the first time. In the book of Genesis, it is not the case. In the book of Exodus, for the first time, Israel is considered a nation. They are considered a politically organized nation of people, although displaced. They are considered a nation. And Israel is the only nation on the planet that had from its very inception, they began their history with God and with the Word of God. Other nations may claim it. We have claimed it. Nobody else has God and the Word of God from their very inception like the nation of Israel. Only Israel before, only Israel now, and only Israel ever. God did that. And in Exodus, with Moses, we find how God sets them apart and makes it very, very clear. They are set above all the nations. Deuteronomy 28 and verse number 13 makes it very clear where he calls them and says to the nation of Israel that you will be the head, not the tail. You will be in charge, like we saw in the Psalms 33 and whatnot earlier, that they are above all of the other common nations of people. Israel is the head. They're in charge. This is God's doing. That's what he did. That's how he set it up. So God's selection of Israel as his chosen people, again, is with a plan. It's with a purpose. And his plan and his purpose is for saving the world. He is going to bring the word of God to all peoples ultimately. If the things I'm sharing with you, if the things that we're reading in the Bible, for whatever reason, politically, personally, uh, whatever, Just don't sit with you well. Please be comforted in knowing. God did not do this to diss us all out, the majority population of the world. He did it because he chose a specific group of people, as he always does, to take his message to the world. And that was the plan. The plan was always that they would be the vehicle through which God would work to get his message to the world. Now, if we can agree to that, and if we can... Be smart enough to agree with that because God said it. Then it should be no surprise that there is a devil who doesn't like it. There is a devil who will try all lengths and all means 
to thwart this plan. Would you not agree? Does it not make perfect sense that there will be a worldwide movement and all throughout history that we could potentially even track that we could see the movements of the devil to try and absolutely stop God's plan of using this little nation to reach the whole world? Well, of course. And again, without recounting all of the old, this is the bulk of your, this is three quarters of your Bible, the Old Testament. And basically what we have are stories like Pharaoh in Egypt. But he, Pharaoh couldn't do it. He couldn't stomp out Israel. A tool of the devil. Pharaoh is one of only two men in the Bible who are referred to as the dragon. That's a reference to the devil himself, that serpent, that dragon. Oh, the other one is Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar tried to do it. Nebuchadnezzar couldn't stomp him out. Couldn't possibly do it. The king of Assyria, Shennacherib, he tried to do it. He couldn't possibly do it. It's absolutely impossible. Nobody could ever totally wipe out Israel. Oh, they had their downtimes. Listen, but because those promises were unconditional, they're going to survive. You come into the times of Jesus Christ with the Roman Caesars, they did everything they could and they couldn't stop them. They couldn't stop Israel. And so God had his plan and he was going to use it. You come into the modern era and the, the event that we point to most recently in our, in our lifetime is that of Nazi Germany. They tried their best to wipe them out. They couldn't wipe them out. They weren't even organized politically as a nation at that time, but they couldn't wipe them out. And today we stand in the United States of America as the only remaining political ally of the nation of Israel. And the sad truth of the matter is, is that biblically and prophetically, there will be a day that our nation will cease to be the ally of Israel. And when that day comes, we too, friends, will go down, but Israel will stand. Now that's not, that's not you know, the red, white, and blue. You know, I get it. But that is the Bible. That is what it says. And as long as our leaders are smart enough to keep us aligned with Israel, as we will see before we're done today, that is a force of preservation for us, okay? That, that's just a, that's a, that's a personal side note. The point of the matter is this. The whole world's against them. The whole world's against them. And we'll see that in a little bit later. But that's Israel. That's God's chosen nation. That's the context of Romans 9, 10, and 11. So let's, let's open our Bibles now to Romans chapter 9. If you've done that already, uh, just take a glance down at Romans chapter 9. And what we're going to see in the first five verses, that's all we're going to look at is five verses. It's kind of an introduction. And we will see the context. What we're going to see really as we look at these verses is what I'm calling our second point on our outline, and that's your missionary burden. We saw miraculous beginnings, and now we're going to see a missionary burden for these people, the Israelites. Please follow with me. It says, starting in verse number one, I say the truth in Christ, Paul says, I Lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Stop there. So the context is set. The Israelites are going to be the context of Romans chapter 9. We'll start off Romans chapter 10, it's Israel again. We'll start off Romans chapter 11, it's Israel again. We'll get to that. It's very, very clear. But please understand that Paul, as he shares his heart, he has such a, an emotional tie to, to the Israelites. Paul has such a heavy burden and continual sorrow in his heart for his people who are defined for you, you don't have to guess, they are the Israelites. Paul himself is of the tribe of Benjamin. He is an Israelite. 
And he makes this amazing statement in verse number three, I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Basically, Paul says, if Israel would get saved, I would gladly go to hell in their place. Wow. For years, I mean years, I have wrestled with that verse of Scripture. For years, I have honestly, and would honestly tell you today, I, I can't say that about anybody. I love a lot of people. Not enough to give up my salvation. Sorry. I mean, and, and if you are with me in this, you, you would feel the same way. You would feel like, well, yeah. I mean, I hope they all get saved, but I ain't cashing mine in. I mean, it is forever, man. I mean, you know. So, I mean, that just blows me up. What, what a statement. What a hard attitude. What a burden of a missionary, right? Well, Paul's not the first guy that ever did that. We also have an unbelievable example in Moses in the Old Testament. Now, in Moses, in Exodus 32, the story is when Moses is up on the mountain getting the Word of God, the Ten Commandments, and and he starts to head down, and they hear this great noise, you know, in the valley, and and they're thinking, what are those guys doing? Is there some kind of big party? And, and, And the Aaron and the Israelites, they decide it's taken Moses too long, and I don't know what happened to him, but let's go ahead and make us some new gods. That's a weird conclusion. And so give us all your gold and earrings, and we're going to melt them down. And ultimately, he gives the crazy explanation. Man, I just threw them in the pot, and out popped this golden calf. I don't know how it happened. Yeah, right. So um, that, that's what was going on. And I mean, God is grieved, and he basically says, I'm going to just, Moses, just get out of the way. I'm going to kill them all, and we'll just start over with you. And Moses, I got to tell you, the Bible says, and when the Bible says this about Moses, it says that Moses was the most meek man that ever was. I mean, Moses is the ultimate example of what a shepherd ought to be. I mean, Moses loved those people. I mean, he really did. And he made a statement similar to Paul in Exodus 32, 31, and 32, where he says, Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, in other words, please, Lord, forgive their sin. And if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book, which thou hast written. Wow. I mean, that, that, is, that is such a passion. He's like, if they're going down, I'm going down with them. I mean, can you, could you really say that about anybody else? And that bothered me because what happens is, is that I end up kicking myself and thinking, I, you know, the Bible says be like Paul, and I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm lame. I cannot, I cannot do this, man. I cannot say what he says. I'd be lying if I, I, mean, I could say it, but I'd be lying. Come on. Before you join me in the, you know, kick yourself club, Let's, um, let's just take a look at verse number 3 back in Romans 9. Take a look. Because it says in verse number 3, For I could wish... Okay, glance up 
a couple of verses. Because the guy who just wrote, I could wish myself accursed, just wrote Romans 8, 38 and 39. He just wrote, nothing, 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 nothing could possibly ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He understood that. Listen, Paul is not lying. Paul is not exaggerating. Paul is using a literary method called hyperbole. He, he, he is overemphasizing the picture for effect. Paul knows there is no... He's not really saying, uh, okay, I'll sign on the line, I'll go to hell, and they'll be... He's not really doing it. I wish I, wish I could. He, he's just throwing it out there. Because it reveals his heart, his love, this burden that he has. That's what he's doing. Exaggeration? Well, maybe. But he's making a point. There was a guy who, by the way, did exactly what Paul and Moses thought they would ask for. His name's Jesus Christ. He literally took all our sin, took all our guilt, took all our shame, took all the blame, and in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says that he not just took it, he became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus Christ did what Paul said. I, I could wish that I could do that. By the way, don't, so don't, don't, if you can't bring yourself to say what Paul said, first off, join the club. Second off, realize you, you, even if you were so noble, you, you couldn't possibly. It's been done. It doesn't matter. It's been done. Jesus did it. Amen? Praise the Lord. Jesus did it. And it's over. And he did it. And he became sin for us so that we could all be saved. And there is no hyperbole whatsoever in the example of Jesus Christ. It is literal. That's what he did. But it does in Romans 9. Does it not really reveal just that heart of compassion? Does it not show where Paul's heart is, that he, Paul's the missionary. He is really the prime example of all Scripture, of a real missionary. But he was called to the Gentiles. And he's talking about his burden for Israel. That's kind of weird. Or is it? Because here's the thing. And, and these are terms we use in church a lot, and if it doesn't really land on you understanding fully what they mean, it's okay, just roll with me for a second. But, but understand this, I'm going to make this statement. Having a burden for lost people, a particular group of them, does not necessarily constitute a call to go to those people. Do you get that? You can have a burden for people that maybe for whatever reason that God knows, he does not literally call you to go and mobilize yourself to be able to be the one used to reach them. That was the case with Paul. He had this great heaviness and sorrow, so much so that if it were even possible, I'd be willing to cash it all in for them. I love them that much. But at the end of the day, God called him to go to the Gentiles. That's who he called him to go see. We sponsor mission trips here a lot, and, and it's a great thing to do. The Bible says that your eye affects your heart. And, and Jesus said, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They're white already to harvest. We need to get to a place in our lives, and I think everybody ought to do it at some point if you're able, 
and go somewhere else and see what God's doing in other places and let your eye affect your heart. What happens is, is you get a burden. You feel a burden. You know, it's no, it's no coincidence that the vast majority of foreign missionaries that leave our country and go somewhere else end up landing at a place where they took a two-week trip to because they went there and they got a burden. But especially for you young guys and ladies who are thinking about this as a potential future for your life, understand that just because you have a burden for somebody, that does not necessarily mean that that's God's call on your life. It wasn't God's call on Paul's life. A burden is not a call. But there's got to be a reason. (laughs) And without a doubt, Paul tells us a little bit more in verses 4 and 5. So maybe the reason that he had such a burden for their salvation was because of what I'm calling wasted potential. Boy, Israel had all the potential, didn't they? I mean, they had it going on. And in the rest of verse 4, and in verse number 5, there's a list of eight things. Eight advantages that the Jews had that they did not take advantage of. Verse 4, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth. And you have listed in your notes the eight things. Let's look at them. The adoption. Only Israel. And you could put only Israel in front of each of those eight things. Only Israel was adopted by God as a nation. There is a term of adoption used for individual Christians. That's a different application. As a nation of people, only Israel was adopted. In Exodus chapter 4 and verse 22, we see God refer to Israel as a nation and calls them his son, his firstborn. In Numbers 23 and verse number 9, it talks about how Israel is not to be numbered or reckoned among the other nations. There is all the nations of the world, and there's Israel that stands out unique. He's called them out. They are adopted. When we studied adoption earlier in the book of Romans, we talked about how that aspect of childhood, being adopted into a family as opposed to being born into a family, had to do with your inheritance. That legally, a child who grossly misbehaved could potentially be removed from the inheritance. But when a, when a parent or parents choose to adopt a child, they have now signed away all legal right to, to ever deny that child inheritance. And Israel as a nation has promises of literal, physical inheritance on this planet that no other nation has. It includes a land. Much bigger than the current land they live in, by the way. That's defined for you in Genesis 15. You can go and study that. The point is this, there are physical land-grant promises that Israel and only Israel is given. To Israel belongs the adoption and the glory. We refer to that as the Shekinah glory. This would be the, 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 the thing that was actually seen in the Old Testament. It was said to have appeared in that pillar of fire that led Israel by the night through the wilderness and the pillar of cloud that led Israel 
in the daytime through the wilderness. It would have been the thing that settled down over the tabernacle or over the temple, over the Holy of Holies, that one time in a year when the high priest would go in on the Day of Atonement and make the atonement and put the blood on the mercy seat, and the glory of God would come down and commune with Aaron the high priest in the Holy of Holies. Literally, that event, that glorious event, was given to only one group of people, only one, and that was Israel. Can you imagine having been alive at that time and seeing all of that? Keep that in mind as you think about how they had all that in their past. Romans 9, Israel's past. And just for some reason, blew it. The covenants. Well, if you go through the Old Testament, there's really three covenants that are given to Israel. One was given to Abraham. We looked at that in Genesis 12. It continues on with the land grant in Genesis 15. There's another covenant that was given to Moses. That's basically what we refer to as the giving of the law. That is our next point we'll get to in a second. And there's another covenant that's given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and talking about that of David's lineage, they will always have a king sit on the throne. And, and that was the third covenant. But the major covenant, and I think this is really the emphasis more than anything else, the major covenant of the Old Testament is the giving of the law. Right? It's Sinai. It's the Ten Commandments. It's the, it's the ceremonial law. It's the thing that set the Jews apart as a peculiar people. When you go to Hebrews chapter 8, okay, we're just throwing out stuff for you today. When you go to Hebrews chapter 8, it talks about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Now, when you study covenants in the Bible, there are many covenants, not just two. But the, the major covenants are the Old, which is the law, works. Do this and I'll bless you. Don't do this and there'll be trouble. And the new covenant, which is in Jesus Christ, I will put my law in your inward parts. I will write it on your heart. Okay? So the, the two major covenants are contrasted in Hebrews chapter 8. So the old is the law. The new is in Christ. So let's talk about the fourth one, giving of the law. Those were given to Israel. The giving of the law, given to Moses on Mount Sinai. The giving of the law on Mount Sinai is unlike the covenant with Abraham and unlike the covenant of David, not just because it encompasses the greatest amount of literature in the Old Testament, but because it's the only covenant that God did not make with the man Moses. He made it with the entire nation of Israel. The giving of the law was given to the nation of Israel. And that's an important point. This is where Israel receives the written word of God. They did not have the written Word of God until Moses showed up. Remember, even Genesis was written, humanly speaking, by who? By Moses. Moses wrote Genesis. God revealed that to him on Sinai, what had happened all those ages past. That's what Nehemiah 9 says. And so, God's Word, His perfect, objective, eternal, righteous standard, it's the Word of God. Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away. My words shall not pass away. It's eternal. It's settled in heaven forever. If you go back to Romans chapter 3, flip back to Romans chapter 3. Look at the first two verses of Romans chapter 3. What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because unto them were committed the oracles of God. The oracles of God, the very word of God, was given to the Jews. Israel is the one who received that. Do you not think that's a ridiculous advantage? 
That's a crazy advantage. They were to take it to the world, but they received it directly from God. The fifth thing, the service of God. Only Israel received the service of God. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, literally what he's talking about is the work of the Levitical priesthood in the temple. That was called the service of God. It was the offering. It was the sacrifices. And all that sums up to what was considered the acceptable worship of God. God was pleased by that. Do you know that if anybody else other than a Levitical priest tried to go into the temple and do that, that they'd have been killed on the spot? Nobody else could have possibly done that. That was given to Israel and specifically to the tribe of Levi. They were the ones that were to carry that out. They were given the promises. A proper study of the Scripture requires you to notice when the Bible says promise and when it says promises. Just notice the promises. Multiple promises were given to Israel and Israel alone. Coming out of this idea with Abraham, they were going to be the head of all the nations. They were given a land grant. They were going to be a source of blessing to all. They were promised prosperity. They were promised, uh, if they obey, even more physical blessings. And eventually, as we'll see the last one in this list, the coming of the Messiah. Jesus Christ in the flesh will come through Israel. The promises were given only to Israel. No other nation competes with them for that. The fathers, referring specifically to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes, specifically Judah and David, the lineage that leads to verse number seven, or verse number eight, excuse me, or the point number eight, I'm sorry, in my list, Christ in the flesh. Christ in the flesh, verse number five says, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. God in human flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, came to this planet a Jew. He came to this planet a Jew. Do not pass over that. Who else in human history has these advantages? Nobody. Nobody has these advantages. Eight things given to Israel. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you probably are aware of the fact that in the Bible, the number seven represents completion or perfection. And that the number eight then rolls into what we often see as a new beginning. God wraps something up completely and fully with seven, and then the eighth is the new start. It's like the octave up. There's seven notes, and then the eighth one is the eighth one. It's the start of the, of the next octave. That's exactly how God numbers the thing. And so, in this case, we have the seven things given to Israel. And had they received the Messiah, they would have had a fresh start and a brand new beginning ushering into a millennial kingdom. But they didn't. They rejected him. They rejected him. And since they rejected him, because they rejected him, that's why we have the book of Romans. <laughs> that's why we have chapter 9. Because this is, Romans 9, 10, and 11, is the rest of the story because of what Israel did. Unto them were given all these wonderful promises, all these wonderful advantages, and it is great potential that was absolutely squandered. It was wasted. But God's promise to Abraham and the promises that came through that were unconditional. They're not based on Israel's performance. He will 
bring it to pass. It's delayed a couple thousand years, but he will bring it to pass. Oh, it's just a couple of days. A day with the Lord is a thousand years, right? That's not that long. He's going to make sure that it happens. So we need to look at some practical applications because that's the Bible study for the five verses. It's very simple. But, but I wanted to take a little time and put a few questions down in your notes for you to consider, what does that really mean to me? I mean, how can I make sense of all this information in a way that's really going to help me? Well, the first thing is, is let's just look at why did God choose Israel? By the way, when you ask questions about God that start with why, typically those are the most difficult questions to answer, typically. Sometimes it's easy, sometimes not so easy. In this case, it's actually clear. Go back to Deuteronomy 7. We saw verse 6, but we're going to continue reading to verse 8. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. Here we go. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people. Stop there for a second. God did not choose Israel because... They were the odds-on favorite to make it happen anyway. God, if I could say it this way, is... I happen to be this way, so I want to say it this way. God, by the way, happens to be a fan of the underdog. He chose Israel as the smallest of the nations, not specifically because they were the smallest, but you know, by the way, when Israel prevails, who's getting all the glory? God's getting all the glory. Because he chose the fewest he didn't pick them because they were the greatest, but he gives us exactly why in the next portion. He continues and it says, why? I'll tell you why not. Now let me tell you why. But because the Lord hath loved you and because he would keep the oath, it's unconditional, which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God's going to get the glory with this tiny little nation. But the reason why God chose Israel is because he loved them. That's the only reason. He chose them because he loved them. That's exactly what he said. Because he loved them and he was going to keep his word. You know what that means? It means exactly what we talk about all the time when we talk about love around here because you get it from the Bible. Love is a choice. Love is a choice. We want to make it an emotion. And it's not an emotion. It's a choice. There's emotions that can come with it and that's awesome. But love is a choice. And God chose them because he loved them. God's love is always based on grace alone. Every time you see it, it's just a choice. It's just a gift. It's just something that he offers. He loved them for no other reason other than he loved them. <laughs> That's just what he did. Why did God choose to die on a cross for the Gentiles? He loved them. He loves us. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be chosen? Well, we're going to look at that in the weeks to come in more detail. But if God chooses based on his love, which he does, that means he doesn't choose based on anything that we particularly do, right? If the Bible says that God loves the whole world, it does say that, right? He loves all people. Then that means that God chooses the whole world. What does he choose them for? We'll see that in a second. He chooses us to be candidates, to be can candidate recipients of his grace. He's chosen the world to receive his blessings. That does not mean the world accepts that gift. It does not mean that the world embraces it and receives it. 
The next question, what did God choose Israel to do exactly? Let's just say I walk up here in the morning and I just say, Preston's sitting down here, hey Preston, I choose you. And Preston might think, okay, for what? Choosing me for what? I'm not sure if I'm interested until I find out what for. That's what I would say if somebody asked me that. Hey, I choose you. Okay, I'm not so sure I'm interested. God chose Israel. What for? Well, we kind of talked about it already. He chose them for a reason, right? He chose them because he, they were going to be the physical agents through which he would bring salvation to the Gentiles. They were going to be the vehicle, right? Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, a greater group of them, the Sermon on the Mount, it's commonly known as. Please understand the Gospel of Matthew is very Jewish in flavor. The Gospel of Matthew is written to present Jesus Christ as the King of the Jews. The Gospel of Matthew is written, and most specifically the Sermon on the Mount is written in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 as the ultimate constitution of the kingdom, that when he sits and rules and reigns on his throne, this is the way the world's going to be. The Jews will be the head of all nations. They'll be carrying the Word of God to all the world. That is the focus. That is the context of Matthew chapter 5. Don't misinterpret Matthew chapter 5 to be written to the church that did not yet exist at that time in history. Matthew 5, 513. Jesus says to his Jewish disciples in the ultimate plan to usher in his Jewish kingdom with Israel over all the nations, ye Israel are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It's thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Can we make application of that into our personal life? Sure. Sure. But the doctrinal context, the literal historical meaning of the author at the time was for Israel. There's no question about that. They are the salt of the earth. They are the light of the world. What did he choose them to do? Well, what does salt do? Salt preserves. Salt preserves. Please understand this. The presence of Israel in the world preserves the world so that God does not destroy the nations. The nations on their own are regarded as nothing before God. If it were not for Israel's prophecies, God would consume the nations. There would be nothing holding back the wrath of God from this world. And their very existence, the existence of the nations, proves the fact It provides them with long-suffering. The presence of Israel preserves what the Bible calls the time of the Gentiles. The time when the Gentiles are ruling. It gives them time. But it's not endless time. It's not forever time. You go back to verse 13. If it's lost its savor, it'll be cast out and trodden underfoot. There's coming a time when the time will end. But the presence of the salt, Israel, preserves all of our existence. I'm telling you, anti-Semitism is just bad planning. It's just bad planning. Salt preserves. Light reveals. That's what light does, right? Thief comes in the night, not in the daytime. Light reveals. So God's light comes to us from his word, right? Psalm 119, 105, right? A lamp into my feet, a light into my path. That's his word, right? 
Romans chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, we looked at that already. Under the Jews was committed the oracles of God. God's word is the thing that brings us light. We have God's word because he gave it to us through the Jews. That's how he gave it to us. And if it were not for the word of God, we could not believe and be saved. Faith comes by hearing, Romans 10, 17, and hearing by the word of God. If it wasn't for Israel, we wouldn't have the word. If it wasn't for the word, you wouldn't have faith. If it wasn't for faith, you could not be saved. It is because of Israel. That is their mission. That is why we are here. We need to rejoice in that. Exactly what does that mean for us now concerning salvation? Well, put them together. God chooses all people as candidates for salvation based on his love. And Israel's a picture of that. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We all need the message of salvation. If it weren't for the word of God, we wouldn't have the opportunity to have an idea what his message is. Israel is the one that provides this by providing the oracles of God. And we need time to be able to hear it and to be able to repent. And the presence of Israel in this world today gives humanity the time they need to be able to hear and to be able to respond. It won't be forever. There will be a time when time is up and the watch is stopped. And Christ comes and he splits the sky and it all comes to an end. And we don't know exactly when that time is. We believe it's soon. People have believed it's soon for a long time. I still believe it's soon. Seriously, the fact that the majority of the people in this world are anti-Semitic, anti-Israel, it's, it's ridiculous. It's mind-blowing. It's crazy. And could only be explained by the presence of a real devil who's trying to stop God's plan. That's the only way it can be explained. It ought to influence your voting capability in this country. Because of Israel's special place of blessing and their special role in God's unfolding of history, our lives are better. Our lives are better. But still, you're individuals. You have free will. You have the opportunity to make up your own mind. God's chosen you to be a candidate of his love. You can say, no, thank you. You really can. And you can walk away. It's up to you to choose. You're either going to receive his offer of love and grace and salvation or you're going to reject it. God's already provided all you need. What he's waiting for is for you to respond. So I'm going to give you a chance to do that right now. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Bow our heads and close our eyes. Bow our heads and close our eyes.